welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode of High Action, we're featuring Galad Hexelman. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. Well, hello, everyone in the podcast realm. You're listening to episode 25 of High Action. I am Will Brom, and I got John and Perry with me. And this week, we're releasing an interview with one of my favorite guitarists, Mr. Galad Hexelman. How about that, John? Oh, yeah. Delighted to have this guy. Early on in the podcast, when we talked about some guys around our age, I know Galad was way at the top of our list of guys we wanted to get on here. Absolutely. I um, I wanted to kind of hone in on a talking point that I thought was really good that he brought up and that I've been thinking a lot about lately, which is literally the your physical posture and relaxation or lack thereof when you're playing guitar, right? So Perry, what are some things that, that you make a point of being aware of physically that influences your music making? Yeah, gosh, that's that's a really important one especially when it comes to solo guitar, I feel like it's really crucial. Uh, when you're on stage, you know, and you're performing with a band, you know, maybe it's good to kind of like get in the groove a little bit more perhaps. Although I could speak a little bit about some of the technique we've used in New West where we balance on one foot, which is kind of like detrimental uh, in a lot of ways. But uh, in terms of really trying to center yourself and kind of help your technique in a lot of ways. I try to keep the guitar really still. Like mm-hmm. I try to keep focus on keeping the headstock really still and not like moving around too much when I'm sitting down playing. I feel like that really helps me um, just be more accurate. You know, it's, it's kind of in line of that famous story about why Wes Montgomery used the guitar strap that ends up on the headstock because mm-hmm. he doesn't want the fretboard to move around a lot. Right. And it makes a lot of sense, you know, if you can kind of just physically center your instrument, I think it helps center your ideas. John, I know you have a lot of classical technique. Does that influence some of some of the way you approach just like playing playing your guitar? Yeah, I um I think the guys I saw coming up playing jazz with the hollow body that had like a longer neck angle mm-hmm. or playing like that and those pictures of Joe Pass playing and I kind of imitated that early on with my Epiphone Casino and I didn't really need to because I'm a pretty tall guy. I can play with the guitar pretty level to the ground and my arms down and feel pretty relaxed. Some people I know that's harder and so they have to get the neck a little higher mm-hmm. to make it feel a little more comfortable when they're seated. Something I've been trying to work on a lot is kind of, I don't know if it's an Alexander technique approach, but when I'm seated with the guitar, I should be able to just stand up and the guitar should stay in the same place as when I'm seated and mm-hmm. standing and seated, even with my L5, which is a big guitar. Cause I'm having, I've been having shoulder mm-hmm. issues the last two years and it is real and it is painful. And when my posture is better, it goes away. Um, that pressure that I'm putting on the left shoulder. So big goal of mine recently is just, I've been practicing a lot more standing up for one. And then I've been practicing yeah seated and standing and just kind of sitting down with the guitar in the same place. And it's, I don't know, it's like you said, Perry, having that consistent neck angle 
certainly makes it a lot easier for the left hand to feel like you don't have to counterbalance the guitar with your elbow and your hand at the same time. I think it's good to talk about this stuff. I, I think the two biggest things that I fall into is I tend to hunch over my guitar when I play sitting. And I play sitting most of the time right now because I haven't had a tour in almost 365 days. And also, I like a chair that's low to the ground so that I can keep my feet planted. Sometimes if I like arch my foot up or arch my leg up to kind of give the guitar a little more height, I find that sometimes I'll like have all this tension in my leg and my foot. I'm like, what am I doing? So anyway, I thought that was a great talking point Galat had, and I really liked chatting with him and I love his his approach to comping and his playing and his sound and and he has some really great insight on just articulation and melody delivery the whole discussion between um jazz guitar language on the guitar and jazz language on the guitar that was really fascinating so for the listeners kind of be queuing in for that portion of it when it comes in mm -hmm. um, yeah galad's a really forward-thinking player and um, definitely, I think, a big influence on the scene overall. Most definitely. And we want to thank all of our listeners who have been supporting us on Patreon and following us on Instagram. Make sure to maybe go on YouTube and click subscribe. And we got lots of fun uh, episodes coming up of this podcast. We have a lot backlogged, and we also have new interviews that we're still conducting. So things are going to get exciting. What am I saying? <laughs> Things already are exciting. You're on high action. <laughs> action is high. Yep. Well, without further ado, we're going to send you on in to listen to episode 25 with Mr. Galad Hexelman. Please welcome to the High Action Podcast, Mr. Galad Hexelman. What's up, Galad? I'm doing all right. How are you? <laughs> Man, I'm so glad to get to hang and, and chat with you again. It's been, um, I don't remember the last time I saw you in person. I think it's been at least a couple years. Yeah, something like that. Probably in Brooklyn, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I, I came to your place for a lesson. Uh, I think that was 20. 18 we were cool New west was probably playing some shows on the east coast or something and yeah that's right mm, i remember that i'd love to start this interview talking about your past and growing up in israel and how you got connected with music and mm -hmm. i know you have a big connection to other genres other than jazz also especially starting as a guitar player so could you enlighten us yeah i mean nothing out of the ordinary kind of the classic uh, jazz guitar player route um Started knowing nothing, absolutely nothing about jazz. You know, starting with just playing songs, Beatles songs and, you know, Metallica songs and stuff like that. And then uh, getting exposed to like slightly more advanced types of types of music like Steve Vai or Joe Satriani or all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually, um, I think the first kind of... Um, bridge to jazz was um, Marcus Miller and also this uh, French uh, French Canadian band called Uzeb yeah nice I feel like the the music scene if you get out of the United States across the whole rest of the world is a lot smaller 
right? Like groups that are popular throughout Europe would be more known in like Latin America, would be more known in, in Israel, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas the right. United States is kind of very isolated in that way. Do you agree mm-hmm. with that? Totally, yeah. I mean, in the eyes of most American musicians, uh, all Europeans are trying to do is try to follow their, uh, their you know, golden path. But uh, people are doing their thing all, right. all around the world, you know. Right. Uh, it's it's kind of, it's a little bit of a bubble, um, and that you know that said, obviously America leads the way in terms of modern jazz, no doubt, and and mm-hmm. you know it, it led the way in in terms of most of rock and most of uh, R and B and most of of course hip hop and you know definitely leading the way in many ways. But there's like so much. So many deep musicians all around the the world, and like to think that like uh, America's only place is uh, pretty limiting. Yeah, it's yeah, absolutely. Anyway, I'm digressing. So we're we're following your childhood lineage. <laughs> That's what we're here you're, for, man. <laughs> right, right. So you're a young guitar player in Israel. Um, do you have a first teacher that was really instrumental to you in getting started? And you know, I had I had a. A few teachers before I uh, started studying with this guy called Erez Netz, um, who's kind of a legendary rock guitar player here in Israel. Um, and I took lessons. Uh, if you want to check him out, uh, Erez is E-R-E-Z, and then Netz is N-E-T-Z. And um, he, I, I, went, I think I started studying with him um, probably when I was nine or so. No, sorry, when I was 11 or so, I think. Uh, he... Um, yeah, he showed me a lot of the stuff that still kind of is um, a part of how I think about music, including he, he was the first to tell me that yeah, I should transcribe stuff, and he was the first to teach me a pentatonic scale, you know, that, that kind of stuff. So um, a lot of the basics were there, and we're, we're still in touch a little bit, actually. Um, but he's, uh, you know, he I have all these uh, all these Israeli records that I really love, and and. Sometimes I look at the liner notes and I, I'll find out that actually he's he's wow. on a lot of them. So he's uh, he's 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 been in it, you know, in the, in the scene for a long time. Really great. Yeah, and he was the one who recommended me to a lot of things. Like um, w- when I was younger, I, like between the ages twelve and fourteen, I, I, did, I did I was in a house band for this TV show. It was almost like a night show format for for kid, you know, like a uh-huh. late night show kind of vibe. So they had a house band, and I was in that band. Uh, right. So uh, he was the one who re- recommended me to go audition for that, and, and that's that's how I got there. So paying your dues on the stage. Oh, absolutely. Were you? What was the scene like? You know, gigging around. Were you gigging a lot in high school? Yeah. So um, this is a funny anecdote. The biggest gigs I've ever played in front of the most people I ever played were. Between the ages twelve and fourteen. <laughs> oh man, what, what and it was all down, all downhill from there. <laughs> um, <laughs> now it's no one. No, okay. <laughs> but you know, I literally played to thousands of like young children, basically uh-huh. as a child, because um, right. we played with this band in like big public events. So wow. uh, we would tour to the country and, and do that anyway. After that, um, I started gigging in high school uh, around when I was 16, mm-hmm. playing jazz. And yeah, definitely like tons of restaurant gigs, tons of mm-hmm. um, jamming. You know, basically, we, you know, we were like, like anybody should be at this age. Like we were obsessed about playing at any chance we, we had. So yep. 
um, we we literally like walk down the street and see like an outlet on the side of a building and be like, we should come here and play. And then we'll bring amps wow. and we'll just play there. <laughs> nice. um, and that, w- that was a, that was a big part of my upcoming, like just um, between ages and si- 16 and like basically up until when I left in New York, we would just play anywhere, anytime, mm-hmm. money, no money, just, and I mean, I still did it after I moved to New York, actually, too. I played right. tons of those kind of gigs from the yeah. from the roughest to the best yeah. uh, for, for many, many years. And I'm curious about your high school years, because when I think back to my high school years, I think especially as a guitar player, whether you're getting into jazz or anything else, I was so open to all types of music. Like I was thoroughly enjoying seeking out basically every genre I could discover did i i have a hunch that you may have done some of that i'm i'd love to ask and and see you know what were you listening to in high school yeah so i did get pretty obsessive about hard bop um and 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 together with north indian classical music like those were my (laughs) two main obsessions um in high school and uh, basically listened almost almost exclusively to that, uh, and then to some nostalgia. What what I now understand is the you know the the foundation to my musical being kind of listening. So going back to Michael Jackson, going back to a lot of Israeli music, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I feel like high school is like that special time where you're just you're possibly the most open sponge you could possibly be. Hmm. You can be, but although, yeah, in some ways, like, it's also, yeah, you're a sponge. And on the other hand, like, I like I definitely had way more agenda than I have right now. Like, uh, you know, I definitely knew that, you know, I liked Wes Montgomery better than I liked the other guitar player. And, you know, uh-huh. uh, and, I, and I knew that uh, uh, this this guy to me was, was better. And this guy was, you know, like, I, I made those kind of definitions to, like, this, where 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 now nowadays I just at least do anything I might like connect to it I might feel something more but like for me like it's it's kind of all good in some ways so yeah it's all serving its purpose and honestly like as long as it makes an artist happy and satisfied and maybe makes some audience members satisfied then that's, it's legit I mean it might, might might not be for me but it definitely has has room in the world and and it's it's a it's a it's a positive thing most of the time I love that so. outlook I agree. Mm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about what brought you to New York. Uh, music. I mean, I, I went to I went to new school. I went to university uh, when I moved, but um, I, uh, which was a great university, by the way. I, I learned a lot over there. But mm. um, I, I mainly just wanted to be in the city. I, I knew that. I actually knew from a very young age that I that I wanted to spend time in America. Like even before I got into jazz, like I I, I went to to America for a few trips with my family, and I was. It was like, wow, you know, how could you not want to be in this place? <laughs> uh, and then, <laughs> so school was, as someone who's, who doesn't have a green card or, or a, uh, you know, a American passport or citizenship, that was my way for me to, to get into the country. So I went that route. And, um, but basically the music, I, I knew New York was where it was sure. at, you know, where, where all the musicians and all the sessions and all the um, um, that that electricity exists, and you had a connection with Smalls 
basically right from the beginning and one of even the before the beginning right yeah it was a i mean it was a very simple connection i would basically just spend hours and hours there like including the old smalls is not the new smalls mm. and you know now nowadays smalls is unfortunately not uh active except for the live streams mm-hmm. um but before it was in the current smalls it was basically like a bring your own beer kind of joint where people would smoke outside inside and um it was you know it was it was real you know it was uh, definitely a scene yeah um and uh, coming to new york as an 18 year old like now that i have a child i think wow that was kind of crazy like to to be <laughs> to be there all by myself for months <laughs> um but I, I used to hang until four in the morning like play the jam session sometimes fall asleep on the couch on the side you know get wasted like the whole yeah the whole thing so um but what i did is is you know i, I definitely just played whenever i had a chance there so if there was a jam session and stuff so um mitch uh who used to used to run smalls and fat cat he uh he you know he noticed me and then one night john mariel do you guys know john mariel great guitar player he i think he he didn't feel good and he didn't show up he didn't he couldn't show up at the gig the late night like the one 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 a.m or something mm-hmm. uh late night thing so and I was around, so Mitch was like, hey, do you want to play the gig? And I was like, yeah. So that was my <laughs> first. And so it began. And so it began. And then, uh, yeah, and then when I left New York, I, I, I came by to say bye to Mitch, and, and he told me, make sure I know that. And I know when you return. So I I made sure I did. <laughs> or I just wonderful. went there because I wanted to hear some music. <laughs> I And something that we like to talk about with the people we interview on here is like having having a venue that you play at regularly and how special that is for your music, for your artistry, for your development. Mm-hmm. I would say it's safe to say that Smalls definitely was something like that for you. For sure, yeah. Yeah, uh, Smalls and Fat Cat and in some ways Jules. The, there was, there is a still this, I think there still is, I don't, I don't know, but I think it's still there. Uh, Jules Bistro, I guess mm-hmm. you're supposed to announce it, Jules uh, Bistro <laughs> in uh, the East Village. Uh, in, on St. Mark's, and the, uh, at first, Anat Cohen called me to play there with her. She had a weekly gig, um, and uh, eventually, she stopped doing that gig, and and they gave it to me. And I think for five years, I would play there every week, and yeah. um, it was amazing. In some ways, because it was a restaurant gigs, uh, a restaurant gig, it was amazing because. Um, I could just try shit and nobody, nobody really, I mean, some people said they were listened, but like a lot of people just had their food and had their right. drinks and laughs and stuff. So I would just bring in charts and, you know, try some stuff with the cats. And, and it was like, um, I think there's, there's great value to, to, to playing, uh, gigs where n- nobody cares. <laughs> or Yeah. Where you can, where you can try things without, without the audience breathing down your back, maybe. Yeah, yeah. There's no pressure. There's, you know, nowadays, like most gigs that I play, they have some kind of uh, level of not stress, but like they're somewhat high, prof- higher profile. So that it's never casual. You know, it's never like okay, let's just let's play a tune and you mm-hmm. know, not never, but you know, it's there's you know, if you if you're playing at a venue and people pay tickets and there's like you know, a hundred or two hundred people or however many changes the atmosphere. Um, 
Yeah, it changes the vibe a little bit. Like you, 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 feel, you feel like you're supposed to deliver something, whereas like there's no expectation. Then you just do your thing, and the, you know right. that, that t- takes out some of the something from the music that is, uh, I think, maybe not not necessary. Not not always necessary. You know, mm. it's 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 nice to um, to just do your thing, <laughs> mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I, and I try to remind myself that when I play high high profile gigs too, like it's casual. You know, it's like just you know be yourself. Don't don't let uh, the pressure change your decisions musically. Hmm. And speaking of you at Smalls, and you have a lot of great collaboration albums with Ari Honig. Mm-hmm. I'd love to talk about how you linked up with him and started playing with him. And those are some of my favorite albums, man. I mean, I love that. Stuff. Thanks, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I met, uh, the first time I played with Ari was in a, gem, uh, not a jam session, but a session at his place uh, with uh, bass player Chris Tordini, who mm-hmm. I went to school with. Yeah, he just asked me, "Do you want to come play with with Ari and I?" And and, and I came over. And it was really fun. And then I took some lessons with Ari uh, through the new school. And um, we, we had a really nice connection, like in the lessons. And I and, and I just and and Mitch was asking me to do those gigs at Fat Cat and Smalls. So uh, you know, I just asked him, "Hey, would you be down to come play?" And he said, "Yeah, sure, of course." And so I started using him as a drummer, and then he started using me as a guitar player. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, that's how it started. I love hearing you two play together. Your rhythmic and dynamic sense, you're so in tune with each other. You know, when we, when we started playing together, the, like one of the reasons why uh, I think we wanted to use each other for our bands is because I, when I came from Israel, I actually had this trio. Um, we call it the, well, I guess it's the same name, but the Hex Trio. We used to call it the Hex mm-hmm. Trio. With a, a bass player called Max Water, Water, Water mm. uh, V-A-T-E-R, and, and a drummer called Doron Tiroche. We, we used to play quite a lot, uh, and um, we were sort of coming from like both Ahmad Jamal, but also uh, that you know his trio. But also at the same time, we were like always like communicating. There was always this like joking around. Mm-hmm. It was a big part of what we did. So when I came to New York, uh, I noticed that like most people don't do that. Like they don't have this conversational, not not in a bad way. Like it was just different. The exchange was more energetic and energetic than thematic. But when I started playing with Ari, I noticed that he's really into it, and I was like, "Oh, the, somebody somebody also speaks that language." So it was it was kind of easy for us to uh, to connect in that sense. Those albums with Ari, and I love how you guys interpret standards. And pent up house, you know, the, these YouTube videos, you guys play pent up house and you extend this or you displace that. So like your treatment with standards, with the melodies that everyone knows. And then, you know, the original albums. Lines of Oppression. Out. Lines of Oppression. Man, I mean, that album is so killing, you know. Thank and that's you. a lot of original material on that. Right. A couple standards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I love I love the connection you guys have. and Thanks. Yeah, I mean, Ari's a... He's an extremely special musician, you know, it's like, mm. um, he's, it's, it's a world of its own, you know, it's mm-hmm. really, yeah. um, I really uh, have so much uh, respect for him as a musician, really. Um, another good talking point, something about your playing that always stood out to me right from the beginning. I think I remember the first time I heard you, actually, I think I was driving, I was still in college. This was probably 2011. And I was driving and I was listening to Split Life because someone had told me about it. So I went on iTunes and I bought it. 
You and remember that? You remember those times? Buying buying <laughs> albums and supporting artists? Barely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> God. <laughs> today, but, today I wrote an email to someone and said, uh, said they, they said, maybe, maybe this gig could be a part of a tour. And I wrote like, what's a tour? <laughs> Is that something in French? Yeah. That sounds familiar. Oh, man. Um, it, so I'm, you know, the first time I heard you're playing Split Life with Ari Honig and Joel Martin, Mm-hmm. your treatment of legato lines it, it immediately mm-hmm. stood out to me and i mean i've i think i've taken probably like six lessons with you over the mm-hmm. years since oh, really? um yeah and so and i remember one of the things you know you talking to me about is is your approach to when you're picking with your right hand versus playing with your left hand you shouldn't be able to hear much of a difference between if i'm right. picking a note and if my left hand is continuing a phrase without any picking Mm-hmm. And and that's been a big way of you approaching the jazz language, um, dealing with delivering lines like the way Coltrane does, like with a more legato concept. And I'd just love to talk to you a little you bit know, about your concept. I mean, the funny thing is that aside from guitar, I don't know what instrument, what other instrument plays uh, so staccato sure. as, as a part as a part of the genre. You know, like. Mm-hmm. Um, the like the the cliche sound of what a jazz guitar sounds like, you know, if you played that in that same phrasing on any other other instrument, it would sound kind of funny, you know. Like, um, sure. you know, I play guitar, but my heroes have been uh, some guitar players, but definitely a lot of other instruments. And to me, that way of expression, when you play lines that um, don't have a lot of Maybe I, sh- I could call it like dynamic rhythmic mm-hmm. thing behind it. Like it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. What I mean is like, you know, then dynamics creates rhythm. Like when you when you look at a line, I sometimes ask myself like, how would this line sound if I played on a snare drum? Like if mm-hmm. I couldn't hide behind the notes and the harmony, like how would this sound? Would it sound like? Taka 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 taka. How is that? Inst- how is it? How is that interesting? Mm-hmm. You know. So, a lot of I'm not gonna name names, but a lot of the greats in this genre, um, or not the greats, but a lot of the let's say people who came to fame in this genre. You know that same phrasing. If I played it on any other instrument, it would sound pretty terrible. So <laughs> I just I just want, wanted to to avoid that. I, I, I don't I don't like that. And I. You know, I definitely had to kind of teach myself how to like play lightly with my right hand because the biggest problem is like when your right hand is out of control, then you're pushing the string too hard, and then when the Everything string is gets... pushed too hard, there's no room for there's no headroom in the in the dynamics. So when the string is you know f- uh, as a starting point already pushed too hard, close to the threshold, mm-hmm. you push it much harder. It's not going to be a lot louder. It's going to be just a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. So. I like to find like that that sweet spot in the middle of the of the of the uh, dynamic range, and then from there I can go down a lot and I can go up a lot, and um, right. that there, then I can be expressive. I, I want to be expressive. You know, I, my my favorite musicians are people like you know Billie Holiday or um, um, you know John Coltrane or Miles Davis, and those people like that. You always like you think they're speaking to you because they're so um, they're so expressive with the, with the dynamics and, and articulation and, and, and rhythm. And would you say that approaching jazz language on guitar versus jazz guitar language on guitar, they're kind of coming from two different places? 
yeah, it's it's always been a mystery to me. Like uh, guitar players just get away with with stuff that like no, no other <laughs> instrument gets away with. Guitar, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Give us some examples if you can. Oh no, please. <laughs> no. no, man, I love. I mean, I, seriously, I love talking about this with you because I mean, the, even even let's just say the way you deliver a melody is really beautiful, whether you're comping under yourself a little bit or not. I think you have a very singing quality in the way you deliver a melody. Thanks. I mean, that's, that's all I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm, that's all, like when I play a melody, that's all I'm trying to do. I'm trying to sing it like, like uh, right. you know, Chet Baker. You know, I'm saying you, when you deliver a melody, it's very singing. It, it, it has an, a, a nice, long-winded phrase to it compared to if someone maybe is playing a melody and the melody note might be picked four times, even though it's technically one mm-hmm. word right right yeah i mean you know there's there's always uh, uh, you know miles davis submitted parts of the melody uh, you know there's, there's, right, there's right. examples of people not playing the lyrics and it's 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 okay as long as it you know it comes from a from a place of honesty you know as long as it comes from like i know i know the i know the song and i'm deciding to create space like uh, or maybe there's like some some element of um like an, an illusionist you know like uh you know that the listener knows the melody, so then you're omitting it. So mm-hmm. to create this, you know, c- the completion context. of the melody in the listener's ear, right. which is something that Ahmad Jamal used a lot. You know, he would play the, the same motif twice, and then you, you're absolutely sure that he's going to play the third time, and then he just lays out. So right. that kind of thing. I'd love to talk about your composing, which for me has been such a joy to listen to your songs over the years. And I mean, when did you start composing and... And what's your process? And just give us some insight on that. Yeah, I mean, the process can, can differ. I started composing, honestly, the, the first, like, as soon as I had a guitar, I started, mm-hmm. like, uh, writing melodies. Um, not that they were great, but, you know, <laughs> maybe they were good. I don't know. I'll have to look for some tapes. But um, the process really differs, uh, like, from song, from song to song. I don't have one way to go about it, but... The best songs, in some ways, they 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 basically uh, kind of just present themselves to me. So I, I'll, I'll many times I'll be in the shower for some weird reason, and then I'll think of a melody with a harmony. But sometimes um, also not in the shower. <laughs> right. I actually um, agree. I've had moments like that too. The shower can be an enlightening enlightening like realm for coming up with like I'm going to change this on mm-hmm. a bridge. You mm-hmm. Know? Oh, totally. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's the classic. Uh, it's the classic uh, sitting under a tree in a in a in a in a you know apple falls in your head. It's like right. uh, yeah, you need to step out of it for a second to understand something. Um, but some songs, they honestly, some songs, I will ju- just listen to a song by somebody else and say like, hmm, I want a song like that, and I'll just write something like that. Right. Right. Um, and other times, um, I'll have like a rhythmic idea that then I'll develop into a, a song, or or I'll have a baseline, or you know, sometimes I'll use lyrics. No. So I'll, I'll try to um, induce a melody with the, mm-hmm. with with the, um, using some lyrics, whether they end up staying or not. You know, it's just it's a helpful tool for me. So many different ways. Do you notice <clears throat> over the course of let's say 10 years, a a trend in your compositional style, like has it changed? Is it very much the same? I'm sure you feel the same way that 
from album to album, you think, well, maybe I'd like to try writing a couple songs with a different starting point mm-hmm. to get a different result. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the thing I'll say about my composition that was kind of influenced by a few people, um, like Omar Avital was a, was a influence on me compositionally. And, and also Ben Wendell was an influence mm-hmm. on me compositionally. Um, not being lazy. Like, uh, sometimes like you, you, you know, you write a song and like, you want the second A to, the second A to have like a slight variation. Mm-hmm. And like, like if you if you if you're curious, you know you know you know, you don't go there's like I, like when, even when I wrote a song like Purim, which I think is a good song, beautiful like, song. Actually, that has a first second ending, so I take that back. But some of my first my older songs, like um, I you know I, I kind of was trying to write a tune, like I was just trying to like write this because because I came out of hard bop, so A A B A A A B A. Yeah, here's a song. Um, and nowadays I'm I'm like more curious hmm, i wonder what a variation i can do i wonder what's missing and uh, but the comp- the the process is always like whatever whatever vehicle i'm using to to write the composition whether it's natural or it's like uh cerebral like um something that is you know based on a concept um whatever whatever the vehicle is uh eventually it has to feel like a song so what i'll do is i'll play it over and over and over and over again um and look for that little twist feeling in my stomach for whenever something is slightly uncomfortable like that's that's not quite perfect yet and then i'll i'll keep playing it and then i'll be like hmm this needs variation Hmm, this needs to be longer this needs to be shorter less changes more changes Mm -hmm. etc but i'll try to tune into my intuition to make sure it's a song and not an exercise so (laughs) right i've been doing a lot of writing during this whole bizarre Hmm. season we're in and a, a thing that i like doing is you know i sit down maybe for a couple hours and have something record it, and then maybe step away for like a day and a half. Don't mm. listen to it. And then you re-listen to it. And it's kind of funny how you can immediately hear like this part's not good. right. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Know? It's like mixing. It's like when you, I mean, when you deal with like mixing a record, you know, you listen to it for like hours and then you you're just fatigued. You're fatigued. And then you, you'll, you'll put it in the, in your stereo system at home, the next day, and you'd be like, "What the hell?" The bass is like, way too loud. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so you need you need to step away from it. But I remember Mark Turner told me one time like that um, he would uh, write something, and then if it if he remembers it the next day, then it means that it was good. Yeah, <laughs> like that it stuck with you. Thank you. 
Beautiful, man. <laughs> man, I have I haven't listened to that in a while. Although that's that's been transcribed a lot, so like I keep seeing people playing it, but mm-hmm. I haven't listened to the actual recording in a while. Um, it's funny, like I feel like I've improved a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure. I mean, that's the you know goal. But that's man, goal. I mean, it's beautiful playing it. It's, I love it's the good. It's good. it's all right. Yeah, it's good. Uh, it's not bad, but like it's. Um, I'll say one thing. Yeah. I, I used to I used to swing harder than I use than I swing today. That I noticed. Like, uh, <laughs> and then. <laughs> well, but um, it can depend on the context, right? Sure, but I mean, you're playing but generally blues. speaking to yeah. Um, I don't. I wouldn't say it's a song, but um, the yeah. I mean, I used to swing harder. It's to me like that. Like that whole phase of my playing is is mm-hmm. very quantized. Like I, I, everything I play there can be written on a page very easily, and like you know you can know what it is. And um, like right after that, I got into like the the fungus. You know, I, I really got into like making things not so quantized, making things mm-hmm. that are like kind of like, hmm, what is it? Is it a, oops, <laughs> you know, right? Sixteen note is it? Be like I, I, I like I like things to be a little less accurate and more weird so sure. um that's that, that's like my my criticism of myself in there plus a little stiff a little just a, just a tiny bit stiff like uh, I, I definitely worked a lot on, on being more relaxed and i could, i can see now that i listened back to it mm-hmm. i can see that it, it definitely helped <laughs> that's a great thing you bring up about your physical comfort and posture and playing um how that affects your music making, right? Whether it's, whether you're standing up, whether you're sitting down, whether your legs are crossed, if you're tense. I mean, I'm sure these are things you actively think about when you're playing. I try not to think about uh, too much when I play, but it's definitely things that I think about on the the daily, in the daily uh, preparation. Yeah. Like um, to get good habits for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, the funny thing is that like we, we think about, the the posture as like something that could um, or or the or the how relaxed you are as, as something that influences the music, but we we can also think about it in reverse. Like we can think about it like when I'm when I do something physically, maybe it's because musically something is lacking, and and to me that that was a big discovery. Like um, you know the, the the notion that like there's a reason why I do something with my head or like. Or, or hyperventilate or like mm-hmm. get get nervous uh, certain things physically and it's because of um, uh, lack of strength in certain things in my, in, in my in my musical being you know so like I, I like to look at it as a two-way street the the the, the you know musical mind let's say and the, and, the, and the body I think I think that they definitely can inform each other about what what's ha- what's going on uh, well, yeah, Galad, thank you so much for making some time for our podcast. It's great to see you virtually. And uh, yeah. over the years, uh, being in New York, I had the pleasure of seeing you perform live a number of times at uh, various venues. And I wanted to kind of hone in on one sort of area of your playing. Uh, that is your work with the band Real Feels with John Raymond and Colin Stranahan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a really cool group uh, by any measure but I also think it really features your guitar playing in a really wonderful way you get to mm-hmm. kind of fill out the guitar as much as possible there's no bass in that band for the listeners so a lot of the, the low-end harmony the high-end harmony the accompaniment is all on galat in a lot of ways and then mm-hmm. you know for better, when, or worse. for better or worse yeah 
and then you have a lot of opportunities to play uh, duo with the drummer, Colin Stranahan, in, the, in that band, and also play solo. And mm-hmm. so I wanted to kind of start by asking you just about kind of getting comfortable with solo guitar. It's something that the three of us in New West are very familiar with, but we also understand that, you know, it's a, it's a huge hurdle for a lot of guitar players to kind of feel comfortable yeah. when you're playing solo. And you yeah, kind of, I mean, yeah, it, you got to do it. It's like, um, that's how, that's how, you know, you're, you're for real. Like when you can play some, some solo, like that's, uh, it's when it's all on you like that. But, um, you know, it's like, I can't say one thing. Um, it's all this, the skills that you, uh, kind of gather along the years mm-hmm. to help you do that. Um, the one thing I, maybe I'll say that, that, it might be obvious, but like, um, like when I when I play solo, especially although I use that kind of strategy when I when I play with a band, when I play solo, the whole orchestration is in my hands. So like any any decision that's made about the orchestration of the music, you know, unless somebody drops a bottle in the room, like it's all me. So I'm the almighty creator of the music at that moment. So um, what that what that um, allows is for me to um, really use my imagination and really not limit myself. Like sometimes when we approach solo guitar, we approach it like we approach playing with a band, like I'm supposed to uh, keep the form, I'm supposed to do this, but why? Like you can, you can go wherever you want. You can slow mm-hmm. it down, you can change the keys, you can, uh, and then you can, you're not getting anybody's way. So you can, all of a sudden, like, be a, a, up here in the upper register, then play something lower down, then play thick things, uh, thin or widespread things. Um, not to let your uh, physical limitations limit your imagination. Mm. Um, many times when we make a decision musically, it's limited to what we know we can do physically. Mm. But if I let myself... Imagine um, anything, you know, like regardless of whether I can play it on the instrument or not, it might teach me new things on the instrument. And, and, and I think that's like, that's something that's standing in the way of us all the time, like limiting our imagination to, to physical things. So, um, like, obviously I can't play more than six notes, right? I don't think I can, right? Um, but <laughs> Acoustically, let's say, yeah. Um, but there's definitely things that like I, I've come up with on the spot just because I was like, Hmm, I still want to play this thing in the upper register, but I also want to introduce a baseline. So how can I do this? Uh, maybe physically, maybe the looper, maybe, you know, whatever, whatever right. way I do right. it. Um, and I think even if, even if you fail, it's, it's, it's better that you have come to the music from your imagination first and then discovered you can't do something, and, and then you can go home and say, hmm, I should share this thing, because it, it, it sounded nice in my imagination, but it, it never came to fruition uh, in reality. Mm-hmm. Um, but that way you learn, you know, like sometimes, especially guitar players, when they play solo, they kind of think, okay, here's the chord I know for half diminished. Like, I'll just play it, and then I'll play a little melody, and then here's, the, here's one of the five chords that I know for A7 flat 9, here it is. Let's build a melody on it, but it's you know it's a little limiting. <laughs> it's like yeah. Uh, yeah, you you have an orchestra, 
a limited orchestra, but still an orchestra. And it has so many sounds. It has like mm-hmm. short, long, high, low, uh, thick, thin, spread, uh, clustered. Mm-hmm. You know, all these, all these, just even without pedals, mm-hmm. you have so many. Tools. Have you ever seen those, those Segovia videos, like when he talks about the guitar being an orchestra? Yeah, I believe so. Those are awesome. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's just showing like how it can sound like all, the entire orchestra. <laughs> I think you know to that point, uh, solo guitar it does have so many possibilities, and you do have this you know ability to kind of orchestrate on your own, and and that does give a lot of possibilities. But at the same time, for people, I think that can also be sort of intimidating. You know, mm-hmm. we've talked yeah, to a, the guitar is is, is hard. It's it, really it's a really hard instrument. Yeah, and I I think you have to approach it with a certain kind of confidence that you can pull off the ideas that are in your head and you can go for something that, uh, you know, maybe you don't quite, haven't quite rehearsed or done before. And Mm -hmm. uh, I was just sort of curious to ask you, you know, I... One of the things I admire about your playing, I think a lot of people do, is you're a very confident guitar player and with what you're playing. And do you feel like that confidence comes from somewhere deeper? Uh, does it come from your family? Does it come from experiences you've had coming up? Where, where do you kind of attribute that? It's funny that you say that. You know, I, I appreciate it. And, and, you know, my wife said that to me, too. Like, uh, I'm, I'm very confident when I play. But I, I don't feel that confident. Like, I, I have doubt doubts constantly <laughs> right so, i mean we're all human um, you know yeah yeah so I, i'm uh, i don't know i mean it it must be part partially just being israeli like having this projection of <laughs> confidence is pretty stereotypically israeli you know isn't it like, I, I don't say. i wouldn't necessarily, you know, I necessarily say that but i think about if, that one way or another yeah but it, it could be if i mean if you're saying it, we'll go with we'll go with it. <laughs> we'll go I with mean, it. I don't know. I'm just I'm just trying to guess what the stereotype stereotype is. But I, I'm also trying to guess what the what the what the root of it. I mean, you know, in some to some extent, um, I have spent a lot of time trying to be good at it. So and and I can say that with confidence. Like I, that, mm-hmm. I can say like mm-hmm. you know I don't I don't think I'm like the most talented person on earth, but mm. I think that I'm. I'm definitely like I have good critical thinking. Like I have good the good ability to say like I suck at this. I need to work on that. Or right. you know, I'm, and then and then I I you know I have some some decent musical talent. Um, and then I just work like I've worked my ass off. Like you know, like all of us, just for for hours and hours and hours. And you know that 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 I mean that's a big part of it. Um, you know that have you ever checked out the um um letters to to a young poet the Rilke book it's a, no i haven't it's it's a cool document it's like basically um a, a collection of letters that that uh, Rilke wrote to uh, a, a younger poet that kept asking him questions mm-hmm. um and w- one of them that really stuck with me is like when when the the young poet asked ex asks him what he thinks about his poetry. He sends him a batch of mm. tunes, uh, of, of poet, poems, <laughs> and he asks him, what do you think? And, um, you know, Rilke said that's besides the point, because, like, if this song was, uh, like, a, a result of your... I don't remember, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but if it was a result of your truest self, of, like, your blood, sweat, and tears, like, there, you had 
Like this was stands a, on its own. Th- this was like it. Like you, mm-hmm. you had something that was it. Then you wouldn't have to ask me. It wouldn't. It wouldn't be important what what I think about it. Yeah, it's true. You got to believe in yourself. You know, otherwise nobody else will. I suppose you, it starts with you. And um, you know, to that note, I wanted to just dial in a little bit more about real feels because you guys all have a great connection. You all really believe in each other when you're playing and it's a fun group. We're really, we're really feeling each other. We're really feeling each other. <laughs> yes. it. That's the, the, the joke in the band is like to keep saying, keep saying stuff that has real feels in it. So yeah. Like, like when we're being interviewed, it's like always like, yeah, we're really feeling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and anyway, one, one thing that is kind of fun uh, that you guys, I believe you utilize this is different looping like you know with the pedal and stuff in the group and we used to do that a lot in new west in the early years and okay. we'd always get into trouble like when things weren't looped just right and i I, I think i've Wait, talked did, did to did you more than one loop did you like did more than one of you looped at the same time yeah we would do things oh, where we'd all loop a, a certain section yeah. and then we'd go to another section that's a nest, nest of hornets i know it's, it's like, like a... it's like walking a tightrope or something and I, no, it's impossible because you guys are not unless you guys are three ro- robots um yeah be a problem <laughs> and you just kind of have to turn into it you know you have to just kind of embrace it in a way and I, i've talked to the your drummer in real feels colin stranahan sort of sure. about being able to approach playing when you're looping things and i just wanted to ask you about those moments in the band when the loop is kind of not where you might expect it but you have to go with it and that sort of creates a whole other set of inspirations musically yeah i mean you know there's definitely an element like in that band there's it's like there's a lot of humor and especially you know stranahan so he's a he's a funny guy so yeah. like you know a humor the humor is a big part of it so like even if something gets moved around it's kind of it's kind of funny we kind of you know we kind of go ah and just <laughs> go back to where it is yeah but um um Generally, it's you know it's mo- most of most of that is on him and that band. Like he needs he needs to, like I, I usually lay like maybe I'll miss a loop every once in a while. But generally speaking, like I'll just you know hit it pretty accurately, and then he just has to listen to it. It kind of sucks for him because he, you know, he's not as flexible as as he would have been if he played with a with an organic player. He's playing right. with the recording at that point. R- right, right. So. Um, it's definitely tricky, but like uh, you know, import, It's really important that he hears me well. I would just say the last thing about Real Feels. It's a great band. You know, even if the loop gets off here or there, I think it's just part of the excitement of what you guys are doing. So totally. I would yeah, keep no, it's fun. keep going it's and uh, look, weird. <laughs> I look forward to hearing more from from your projects and also uh, from Real Feels. Today's episode of High Action is sponsored by Jeff Traugott Guitars. Jeff is a luthier based in Santa Cruz, California, and he brings an incredible quality of artistry and craftsmanship to the acoustic guitar. He only builds about 12 guitars a year, and he develops a very close relationship with each one of his customers. Together, he focuses on the tone and the playability that you want from the acoustic guitar. Here's a recording of me playing my Trigot acoustic. The playability is amazing, the tone is rich, so for more information, check out trialguyguitars.com. I've always felt you and I have an interesting connection because for a brief moment, I actually owned a Howard Roberts and Epiphone. Ah. And I didn't have that guitar for very long because it was just a 
beast, man, especially plugged in. And I've always been curious to ask you with your instrument, I know that was an instrument you played early on, and since then you've you've designed other instruments with some makers. And I didn't design shit. They did everything, but yeah. Dude, so here's here's a story about this instrument. I was, I was in um, uh, just first year of high school, or maybe, yeah, first year of high school. I knew nothing about jazz. I, I came to high school. They had a jazz program. Mm-hmm. And I, I went to a few jam sessions, and then I realized that if you're trying to play jazz guitar, you need to have a hollow body guitar. And uh, Gibsons are good. I knew Gibson and I knew Guild were good. That those were those were my two <laughs> brands that I knew um, for hollow body. So um, then my mom went to visit family in Canada, in uh, Toronto, and um, I was like, hmm, maybe that's my chance to buy a guitar. So I went online, and this online of like literally more than 20 years ago right uh how old am i yeah more than 20 years ago like 22 years ago so extremely limited um and i found this store in toronto that had a guitar that looked fantastic it just looked so pretty and it it looked like a jazz guitar and it had a pickup and uh um and i was like uh can you get me that guitar when, when you're there <laughs> and she, uh you know, she she got she got it for like a thousand Canadians, which is ridiculous. Like that back then, it was like almost yeah. nothing. Um, and she came home. We opened the box. It's a different guitar. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> so it's and like she didn't know. <laughs> oh man! So. She came back home and it was different from the picture. It was the, the picture was similar looking, but definitely not the same guitar. Like it had mm. the guitar in the picture had like four knobs, and I remember that came with two knobs, and I was like, mm, "That's not the same guitar." <laughs> so, anyway, but it was I was really lucky because that, that guitar is I still love that guitar. It's, a, it's an awesome guitar, um, and um, I think you know it's helpful to like uh, come up and, and study. Uh, music on a great instrument that's like uh i mean you know it's not mandatory but it definitely was like inspiring to play a guitar that sounds really nice mm. yeah mm. and you know we're as guitarists we're kind of lucky in a way because we're not violinists and cellists and pianists right. spend a hundred thousand dollars on an instrument but i encourage my students too man to like really invest in a nice instrument and it's such a interesting guitar i mean when i had that howard roberts i loved playing it acoustically but anytime i plugged it in it just wasn't the sound i was really going for so i had traded it for another too boomy or something it was and you know i was too young at the time to really learn how to control the tone with my right hand because so many guys i'm sure ask you or they all ask us on the road like how do you control feedback with an arch top and i'm always like your technique you need to make sure that your left and right hand are really controlling the instrument and that the amp is in the right place but mm, it's really yeah. the player i think this this mystique that we there's some magic guitar that fixes tone for everybody it doesn't exist you know nope. and um i know victor baker built you some guitars back in the day and he's a fine jazz guitar player too yeah so, I really appreciate about luthiers. I have a Marchione and a Traugott, and mm. both of those guys, too, are... What's a Traugott? That one, I don't know. That's a steel string flat top guitar, and Jeff builds guitars out here on the West Coast. He's built a couple guitars for New West mm. Guitar Group, um, 
but the um i heard of those guys <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry that's it yeah well funny enough <laughs> it must have was that a fu- has that been a fun experience working with victor because he's a player and i, I like luthiers that make guitars because the players feel that it needs to be a certain way versus luthiers that make guitars because they think that they they should be built a certain way, if you know what I mean. And it seems like Victor's a cool guy like that. Yeah, Victor is super, super chill. He's actually in the West Coast for the last few San years. Diego. San Diego, yeah. yeah. And Nico, um, too, I guess. But he's a violin maker. But Right, he used to be a violin maker, yeah. Um, you know, Nico definitely has more like, the. you know, he. I mean, he's he'll listen to you, but he, he definitely has a few ideas of how things should, should go. But Victor was like, um, like whatever I throw at him, he would be like, yeah, well, maybe we can try that. Like he'll, he'll, or, or he'll talk me out of something because it doesn't make any sense. But um, yeah, I mean, Victor is, uh, I love his instruments and it, um, it, you know, it was really great to work with him. We were also good friends. Like I would have him over, he would have us over. Um, yeah. This it's fun. sweet dude. Kind of to me, that reminds me of like how Jimmy DeQuisto was with Jim Hall and these guys. Like it was a hang, you know, and like we mm-hmm. were always talking to our luthiers. I'll call up Marchioni and we'll just have, share a glass of wine over the phone and talk about, oh, that's cool. Out, you know, and talk about the, the kind of wood that they're using. And so I like giving a shout out to these guys too, but it was always something I was curious to ask you about, man. I, I really love your sound. Great guy. You're, you're totally, um, like killing it in terms of somebody that's got a concept for their sound, a concept for their music, their compositions. And it's just, it's great, man. I feel like players like you really bring the community of jazz guitar together. And oh, wow. man, also thanks. internationally uh, too, like the fact that you grew up in Israel, you've been in New York and back that can only help this community right now. So again, it's an honor to have you on high action, man. I'm glad we can. Oh, man. I'm just trying to play some nice notes. That's all. Yeah, man. Yeah, Vernon. 
Beautiful. It's nice. That's not bad. <laughs> I feel like that showcases so wonderfully a lot of the aspects you talked about, like orchestration, modulation, extending, changing, changing the form a little bit. I've, I'm, you know, I think yeah, I'm like an organ player. I, I mean, uh, you know, I have so many. Uh, there's no bass player, so the only thing is rhythm that I have to play with, and even that is pretty chill because Colin is such a good listener. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, man, as we as we kind of start wrapping up here. Um, you already started talking about your actions, so we might as well just ask you now. You know, <laughs> low, low action. Just how, just how low is how low can you go? <laughs> oh, trust me. Um, no, it's it fluctuates. I mean, it uh, it depends kind of on like my my mood. Um, but just I don't know, like what, how do like I don't have. Is there a number? Like, can I measure anything to tell you? <laughs> <laughs> no, don't worry about that. It's, I basically like. I'll give you a, I'll give you a hint. Like I, I'll have the thrust adjuster in in the guitar pretty much the whole time. So like <laughs> whenever I feel like it's too tight, I'll make it a little loose. Yeah, and right. vice versa. Um, and um, unless I change strings, I'll try to keep it around the same place. But um, some days I'll be curious. Hmm, I wonder if I can raise the bridge a little bit and lower the thrust and and see if that would make it feel better. Can I ask, um, were, were there points uh, in your development when you were playing maybe earlier on where you had the action higher? Did that? Oh, yeah. So is that, is that mm-hmm. part of how yeah, you learned how, your phrasing York, and my stuff? My action was extremely high. Right. Um, like, as extremely high as it is low right now. Right. Um, and um, I, I took my guitar to Steve Berger, the Howard Roberts. I took it to Steve. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's the guy who used to set up uh, uh, Jim Hall's guitars, mm-hmm. and he used to also he still does uh, Pete Bernstein's guitars. Hmm. Um, and um, he's he he was like, man, just you know, I gave I gave him the guitar to to refret, and he said like, let me let me lower your action a little bit and see and see how you how you feel about it. If you don't like it, I'll change it back. And it was like, wow, why have I, why have yeah. I been struggling with this for so many years? Like all of a sudden, like all these, all these things came out so, so much more easily and without any sacrifice on sound. So I was like, hmm. it might have attributed though. You have really good articulation with your left hand. You know, you really emphasize what you're playing with your left hand. Sometimes the higher action can kind of help a player get stronger in their left hand. So maybe it was good for a point. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a teacher tell me that once. Like, it's you know, I bought a, a pretty shitty acoustic guitar, and I said, "Man, the action is so hard." He said, "Yeah, it's good for you. Like, you right. need to train your left hand." Right, right. Maybe. Well, man, it's been such a pleasure, and right. um, you know, you've been a real mentor to me over the years. So I'm. It's great to reconnect and say hey, and and have you on this podcast, and we're really, really glad to to get to catch up. Man, my pleasure. Thanks, thanks a lot, uh, and uh, you all are. Uh, bunch of bad dudes yourself so i appreciate you guys uh caring about yeah, what i have man. to say i hope i hope it um uh, hope it uh, makes any sense to anybody who listens <laughs> absolutely and you know be safe and continue keeping the connection with the you know across the world with all the musicians going man we yeah. really appreciate it Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash newwestguitargroup. 
There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action. Thank you.